This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. We tell ourselves stories in order to live, writes Joan Didion in her essay, The White Album, a work that loosely collects the significant moments of Didion's life in the Mansonoid terror twilight of late 1960s Los Angeles, living in the city, experimenting with drugs, watching Jim Morrison and the Doors disintegrate during a recording session, coming to know Manson family member Linda Kasabian during Charlie and the Family's trial all into one big, sprawling attempt to apply narrative to the passage of time. Those who survived the 60s told themselves stories, she asserts, to make sense of the pain, the madness, and the gnawing sense of loss that followed the passing of a cherished era. Times passed, times changed. Everything was to teach us something, she writes noting that in this light, all narrative was sentimental, and that sentimental application of narrative allows for the excavation of meaning from the senselessness of ever-passing time, a way to understand how to live with the inherent vice of life, what it does to us, what it takes from us, who it takes from us. Or, as Paul Thomas Anderson asks some 30 years later in his 1999 mega-narrative Magnolia, what can we forgive? That's the question, all right. And it's one his 2014 film Inherent Vice returns to, but only after getting high as all stratospheric fuck while locked in what Janis Joplin called dem old cosmic blues again. The film's themes repetitively murmuring the question, mantra-like, beneath a gathering of what is either the mystic coastal chill of the Pacific's downlit fog or just a cumulonimbus ceiling of cannaboid smog. With inherent vice, fracturing Magnolia's existential inquiry into component parts, scattering them about as if to find a deeper meaning, while the marrow deep paranoiac gloom settles in. Not just what can we forgive, but what can we live with? What can't we live with? And finally, what, and most important, who can't we live without? How do we even try? Gee, our show's host thinks, I don't know. Ladies and gents, hippies and hitmen, sax players and government snitches, feds and flatlanders alike, welcome to Increment Vice, the podcast that breaks down Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece, Inherent Vice, one scene at a time. Brought to you today by Channel View Estates, Artesia's newest and grooviest residential housing development. No buzzkill credit checks, no ripoff down payments. That's not your bag. But check this out. Fully equipped kitchen with automatic self-cleaning oven and breakfast nook. Out of sight. Attached one car and available two car garage. And best of all, a view of the beautiful Dominguez flood control channel that can only be described in two words. Right on. I am your host, Travis Woods, and I'm here to talk about, explore, and investigate one of my favorite movies of this or any other century. The woefully, woefully underrated Inherent Vice. It's a film that, on its surface, isn't much more than a bleary-eyed and bloodshot jumble 
of mumbled conversations between a stone detective and whoever, whoever he shares a scene with in this lyrical, convoluted pinch of knees. But when you break down the film scene by scene, moment by moment, and then step back and view all of those pieces as a whole, these scenes, they form in their totality a beautiful and human and hilarious mood and a story of loss and love. Inherent vice, as the character Sorta Liege tells us, in a maritime insurance policy, it's anything you can't avoid. Eggs break, chocolate melts, glass shatters. For insurance purposes, the term represents that which will inevitably change due to its nature. And the film Inherent Vice is an investigation into the ultimate universal force of change, as well as its central subject, time. And it bases that investigation from the modest, ground-level vantage of those who just dazedly and sadly watch time go by. Eggs will break, eras will end, chocolate will melt, love will fade away. The 1960s and ex-old ladies and the summer of love and Kennedys and the Beatles, they're all inherent vice for these characters. They are, like time, things that change due to their intrinsic nature. They cannot be insured against just as the characters of this film cannot ensure themselves against the passage of time, nor can they let go of that which passes with it. And while the 2009 Thomas Pynchon book upon which this film is based is an elegy for an era that has permanently changed, taking all its hope and promise with it, Anderson's film is a profoundly mournful, profoundly funny study of the men and women who are stunted in the thrall of time's passage and by the loss that that passage creates as those they love disappear within it. And so it's a film about obsession, about these characters' unwillingness to let those people go away. And in my opinion, it's a masterpiece that deals with universal themes that we all suffer from and the inherent vice of life that we all struggle against. And being that this is a film about obsession, I can think of no better guest to lead us off on this journey of midnight hairpin turns along the Pacific Coast Highway than the man who's here with me tonight. He is no stranger to cinematic obsession. The creator and host of the 167-episode One Heat Minute podcast, in which he broke down Michael Mann's epic crime saga, Heat, one minute at a time, before finally scoring a sit-down interview with Mann himself, in an interview that is an all-timer with the director. And he is now the host of the entertainment news podcast, The Take, on flick.com.au. The only person I know more obsessed with a single film than I am. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Blake Howard. Wow. What an intro. Thank you so much. I can't think of another person who... I'd want to be talking to about another obsessed movie. Thank you so much, Trav. That was a lovely intro. And, well, thank you for and, coming. And you're welcome. And this movie is its an incredible piece of work. It's, uh, it's something that, you know, to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit, it's a movie that I felt genuinely could have stood up to the minute-by-minute scrutiny that Heat did. And a very rare movie in that echelon that could have stood up to that scrutiny. In fact... At, at some points in time when people would ask me, Blake, what's the next minute-by-minute minute podcast you want to do? 
and and inherent bias had percolated in my head because it's something that I've obsessively revisited too. I think it's an absolute. I think everything you said in that introduction is absolutely right on, right on indeed. And it it it's a masterpiece. It's, it's a, a masterpiece. genuine unloved masterpiece. Absolutely. And look, and I think what I think what we're going to find is that it is deeply loved. And there's a very unique <laughs> crop of people that are going to deeply love it along the way on this journey with you. But um, sure, I would say not loved enough. That's a better way. Not loved it. enough. It's not loved enough <laughs> for us. It's, it's unloved. It's because it's not universally it's that, loved. <laughs> it's that ragged little mutt when you're going to the dog pound or you're going to a shelter to adopt a dog, and it's the dog that kind of everybody passes by, but like maybe one out of twenty-five people they stop and they look at the mangy little guy and they're like, "Yeah, this is the guy for me. This makes sense. Like, yeah. I get this guy." And look. That's in hair advice. Speaking of mangy guys, this is exactly why I, uh, I can say that I read your wonderful piece on Brightwell Darkroom um, for everyone. Uh, you know, it's going to be linked almost permanently in, in, in the description of every one of these episodes. I read your wonderful piece on Brightwell Darkroom and I thought, no. There, I can't ever do this show. I could never do Inherent Vice as a minute-by-minute podcast. This increment vice project is yours and uh and there's only one person in the world that i think i would uh, i would happily sit back and be a guest to it um and and watch you go and fulfill it it's uh it's awesome so thank you so much for bringing me on for the very first episode feels like a baton being passed it is and you know for those of you listening you know blake says thank you for letting him be on but he is also my producer and basically a gun is to my head right now (laughs) i i do I do have to have this man on for my my opening sequence. Um, so take take his humility with a grain of salt, folks. <laughs> Look, there's but, no gun. There's no gun. There, at best, is a chocolate-covered frozen banana being pointed at you through this <laughs> exchange uh, um, and wielded uh, willingly. But, uh, yeah, no, there's, um, there's just me and watching uh, you collect this insanely wonderful cohort of people um uh, is 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 going to just be a real treat for for people to listen yeah, to so i'm excited to be here I'm, and i'm very excited to be doing this i'm really excited about the people we have lined up to talk about this film and i think listeners are going to be really surprised and intrigued and interested about by who we have coming on and what they're going to have to say and before we jump into this scene the first scene of the film i just wanted to ask a general question when did you first see Inherent Vice, and what did you think of it when you saw it the first time? Uh, I saw it in, uh, I think it was January of 2015, because it was a late, am I right to say that it's a late December 2014 release, or yeah. late, a late 2014 yeah. release? Yeah, so uh, in Australia, I saw a very early media screening for uh, Inherent Vice. It was one of the ones that was like, one of the last ones that you could conceivably include on on your previous year's best of list or one of the very first yeah. ones that you'd have to reserve to your future best of list in odds because we kind of a little bit behind the um, behind the schedule uh, uh, as far as international releases. I saw it and I utterly and immediately adored it. Um, I have a real strong affinity for Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker and his films. Um, I think... You know, when you look at his resume and it's got films like There Will Be Blood and The Master and Inherent Vice on it, it's just a staggering collection of um, incredible and, and versatile stories. Um, and I just, I saw I saw it and I was just completely blown away. And there were other people that were kind of very soft. And I 
I had a joyous experience watching it. I laughed and laughed. I was obsessed. I thought about it so many times. And immediately as I bought it on home entertainment, I watched it multiple times on the first day that I, that I bought it. I, I watched yeah. it yeah. and then I watched it again and I watched it again. And I remember one of my best friends uh, came to my place and I said, oh, have you seen Inherent Vice? And he said, no. And we watched it. And then we watched it twice on that night too. It's just a movie that I've found it infinitely more rewarding on every rewatch. And, and, and I had an immediate reaction to it, immediate love for it. And then I saw that, you know, perhaps when you've got the heights of things like Boogie Nights, Magnolia, there will be blood on your resume. People are, you know, a little bit hard, harder and harsher on PTA, but it wasn't their favorite. But, um, you know, it was a multiple years in a row for me of best films of the year starred Joaquin Phoenix. One of them was her and the next was Inherit Vice. And uh, I just think it's another outstanding, incredible performance by him at its centre and, and literally this loaded cast of murderers row of uh, people, including Brolin, um, and, you know, Catherine absolutely insane cast. <laughs> it's insane. Absolutely insane it, cast. And that even more insane that they are gathered together to tell a story so wacky. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is humongous and heartfelt and beautiful and sad, but it is also incredibly odd and goofy. <laughs> yes. And there are such moments of like, you know, naked gun airplane level goofballery. And you've got some of the greatest performers of their generation making dick and fart jokes <laughs> with each other before, before getting back to the mystery at hand. And that's, that's part of the, the perverse pleasure of, Thomas Pynchon and his work, but also I love that this is a movie after such rigorous control and restraint in something like There Will Be Blood and especially The Master, two films that I, I adore, especially The Master, I just adore, to see PTA just cut the fuck loose <laughs> and make make yet another of his explorations of who we love and why we love, but to marry that to such a silly, strange universe where you kind of half expect Leslie Nielsen to be coming around the corner <laughs> at any moment. I just, I love that. Look, and if anyone's listening, Josh Brolin, get him a gray wig and just make some more like police academy movies tomorrow with Bigfoot Bjornsson as the character. Like he is, <laughs> he is, he is Leslie Nielsen precise in his, you know, 50s flat top delivery of just insane things coming out of his mouth with a, a completely gorgeous straight face. Unbelievable. She went all, she went all groovy on his baby, <laughs> baby. She's gone. She went all groovy. I, I, I want to pre-apologize to anyone that makes it through this entire show, listen to all of these upcoming episodes. Every single Brolin episode is going to begin with me going, all right, here's my favorite scene in the movie. This is it. This is it for me. When he wantonly fellates a chocolate-covered banana. Wow. This is going to be my favorite. This is my favorite scene in the whole Might movie. Might be my favorite scene when, in the decade. <laughs> when he swallows an entire plate of Doc's pot. This is my favorite moment in the whole film. This right here. This is this this is it. This is it. This is it right here. It's going to be from the beginning to end. Every Brolin scene is going to be my favorite. So I'll pre-apologize for that. But going back to what you said really quickly, I just wanted to say that this what that what I'm doing with this show is it's not just meant to be something for inherent vice nerds and for the hardcore among us. I really want this to be something that even if, like you said, there, there were so many people that were soft on this movie and they were unsure about this movie or walked out of this movie 
like so many of my friends where they're like, I have no idea what the fuck that movie was. There was there was a couple of funny moments and then there was like a depressing sex scene and then it was over. And I don't know what I saw. A big part of this show, I want to be me and a guest putting it together and all these different points of view that they're going to bring to the table to create this exploded view of what this film is. And we're going to have people on that don't like this movie. We're going to be talking to them as well. People Essential that are to do so. And we've got guests on who have never seen the movie, who are going to be watching it for the first time for this show. And mix that in with people like you and myself who, you know, I have some serious problems uh, <laughs> in that, like, that this is one of our all-time uh, favorite films. I, uh, our, the guest on the, uh, our upcoming guest for episode two, uh, I believe that this film is in her all-time top five favorite films ever. Hmm. Uh, I would simply say it's in my she top has great 10. Taste. She, she has great she's taste. She's got top five. And when you mix all of these people together, I think we're going to come away with a really interesting, really, really fascinating view of what this film is and why it is so important and what makes it the thing that I think that we can talk about for about 50 episodes. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. And yeah. with that, we should dive in watch the opening scene we're going to start the film for those following along at home we're going to do this a scene at a time and tonight we are going to have a very short one it's about 60 seconds and it's going to kick the film off with our narrator She came along the alley and up the back stairs the way she always used to. Doc hadn't seen her in over a year. Nobody had. Back then it was always sandals, bottom half of a flower print bikini, and a faded country Joe in the fish t-shirt. Tonight she was all in flatland gear, hair a lot shorter than he remembered, looking just like she swore she would never look. And there it was. The, the first dissolve of many dissolves that sprang from which sprang forth thousands of Tumblr posts in 2014 <laughs> and 2015 about the magic of the PTA dissolve. Oof, there it was. You know, within the opening seconds, I don't know if you've, I haven't even asked you if you've read Pynchon's book. No, I haven't. I've, 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 I haven't read it. Um, I've read other Pynchons, um, and I even bought a, uh, inherent vice after seeing the film because i'd never heard of the book prior to um and it's just one of those things where i've once you bought it and you're so obsessed with the movie i don't like i was more hesitant to read it i don't know if that sounds it's <laughs> a weird thing but it's just like you know that it's based off of something you're going to be bringing a lot of preconceived notions to it so i kind of like parked it so it's sitting on my bookshelf in pristine condition at this moment well, I'm the exact opposite. I have to obsess <laughs> and I have to absorb everything that has anything to do with something I love. So I've read it way too many times. But there we are, Gordy the Beach, 1970, to stand in for Manhattan Beach in South Bay, which is where Pynchon actually lived in 69 and 70. But uh, what's so cool about this, open, literally the opening seconds, and PTA is already kind of changing and rearranging and making this story his in that uh, sort of liege, in the book, she's just like Doc's best gal pal. 
and there is no narr- narrator. And within within seconds, she becomes she is written by PTA to be this film's narrator, which I so loved walking into this because it's such a subversion of the typical hard boiled typical hard boiled narration that would usually backbone a detective story like this, but to instead have this frequently stoned hippie gal and just sitting somewhere on a beach kind of letting this tale unfurl for us to us and yeah, i love it i love the way she talked i love the way she looked and it just it's such a it's such a necessary change that it's hard to actually go back and read the book and not have her be telling it to me <laughs> yes it's a great it's, it's it's a great device because if you watch noir films so often the hardboiled detective is the voice you know so although it's a subjective perspective it's kind of you know, he's a detective. It's his objective understanding of what has happened. Oh, you know, she walked into my life, etc. Um, from you know, countless, countless films that have either a like being earnest or b being ripoffs. Um, but I love Sword of Leash, and you know, Sword of Leash for for anyone who doesn't actually know, it it literally is the practice of foretelling the future from a card or other item, you know, at a random collection of things so like, oh, you look at blake over here he's bringing heat uh, listen bring, to this bring in some heat so look and that's what it means and this was one of the elements of the movie that was seeing sort of for the first time that really struck me was because when you get drawn in with someone who you believe to be an objective narrator in the movie who is just a side character you really pay attention to them i guess it draws you into their attention and so when she pops up and pops out of this story and pops back in again is really it's really one of the things that I thought was most magnificently mysterious um, and magnetic about her character. So I, I I love I love the hard cut from black to Gordita Beach. I love the kids running down the path. I love this oh. kind of rickety rickety oceanfront houses that need to be painted every year, otherwise they just look like hell. Um, looking out to this beautiful, stunning afternoon ocean. There's nothing like LA lights. Um, I did a podcast about a movie that was set in LA, and I don't know if I talk enough about the lights in that. But um, uh, I'll, I'll, you did a podcast about a movie in LA, really? <laughs> yeah, something like that. And uh, people should listen to that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, but yeah, so I I love the hard cut, and then you know you talked about the dissolves. You know there there are a beautiful series of result dissolves in this, and I can't wait to hear you talk. Um, about some of my favorite moments in the film that that feature those wonderful dissolves. But I just love that everything about right this very moment as you're trying to appreciate this movie, Sotolige's recollection, she's angelic, it's beautiful, it's summery, it's sunshine. It all feels, without even saying a word, like it is just this blooming nostalgia and the way that she talks, exactly. the, the way she talks about it, and then it seeps into reality. And there's something that is both dreamlike and really harsh about what the reality is. Because I, I love, I love, love, love her um, her exact line. She came along the alley and up the back stairs the way she always used to. So all of that beginning and ending in the uh, and uh, a flower print bikini and a faded country <laughs> country Joe and the fish T-shirt. That that is all this just beautiful lyrical something, um, but the moment she goes tonight, she was all in Flatland gear, 
And it's almost like the, the briefness of the nostalgia drowns out in the dissolve. And I just, I think it's like, there's just something so perfect and tantalizing. Like if you're not hooked, I don't understand you if you're not hooked by this opening narration. I don't understand. We're not going to be friends. I, I'm just telling you right now. I know that Travis is very uh, kindly trying to bring people into this fire, but I'm, I love how weird this movie is. And I think that if it speaks on your frequency right at the beginning, one of the elements that will speak to you is this, this exact precise moment. Oh God, so much to work with. Here, Blake. Thank you. <laughs> Bless your heart. Yeah. And you're so right that the, the opening minute of this film in a film in which a postcard plays an important part it feels like a visual postcard. There's something about it. The the there's a texture to it. That's the best. There is a genuine texture to mm-hmm. this, and it's got like you said. There's that 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 weird white milk spilt sky that is probably the pollution that's gonna choke us all to death. But when you look <laughs> at it, it looks gorgeous. And the bars of yellow sunlight that come through that as the sun falls behind the sea. There's something special about L.A. Like David Lynch talked about that when he drove to L.A. for the first time as a young man in his 20s. And he said he was just struck by the sunlight, that there's a there's something different about it out here. It touches you in a different way. It warms you in a different way. It shines on you in a different way. And this opening scene so captures both that that uniqueness, but also, as you said, it's infused with this melancholy of this is a sunset from a long time ago. This isn't right now. She's remembering something that's already happened and she's telling us about it. If, by the way, and this is going to be a big thread that we're going to have to talk about throughout this series, if she's even really she at all. <laughs> there's a, there's a, uh, I was, there's I was trying to, to bury big... the lead a little bit for the second half yeah. of that conversation. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But, you know, she is, let's call her, Sort of Liege is a very literal definition of the term unreliable narrator <laughs> Yes, in that I think that she's telling me the truth, but I don't know if she's who she says she is. But yeah, I, I do love the, the, the sense of melancholy that this film begins with. And I think it was something that actually really surprised people because the trailers do make it look a bit more like an airplane movie than yes. anything else or a naked <laughs> gun film. But instead like this film opens with this heavy sense of melancholy as this man who's like on the wrong side of 35, he's laying in his on his couch as these neighborhood kids just run and laugh past his window, clueless as to all this pot fogged sadness that's like blooming in this little house. And, you know, the regret for times past and times changed. And these kids are just running around happy because they've yet to become afflicted with the little kid blues, which we're also going to learn about later. And going back and rewatching that knowing everything that is to come this is such a perfect thematic launch point for the whole film it has everything that is in the film it's got that just that wry wistful not quite not quite depressed just kind of maybe wishing things had been when as you're remembering them wishing things had been a little bit different wishing you could remember them in a different way even though you're not going to and I love that. And God, that just so rings my bell. It just before we get into the before we get into all the big sleep stuff, which I also love in the next scene, just God, it's this is what I think PTA does so well. It's a little abstract, it's a little plotless, a little formless, and yet there's such a 
a humanity and a and a heart and just a sneaky wry little lip curl of a smile that you can barely make out just just a play there's a playfulness to it but that doesn't undercut the beauty and yeah that, that's what i love about this opening scene so so much even before we get into doc and we get into shasta and we get into the plot it's one of those moments when you watch it and then you go and you read the book and the book just is a hard just hard open right with shasta in the doorway with a you know the classic film noir intro i can't imagine this film without this opening scene i don't know that as silly as it sounds i don't know if this film works without this 47 <laughs> 43 second sequence at at the top i don't think it does yeah i think i think it's about if you know that it's reeking of regret from the very moment that you start and sun the sun is setting the sun's setting on a time as much as it's it's setting on an era as much as it's setting on Gordita Beach in 1970, right? We're post-69. You know, there's another... Yeah, this is an end of an era movie. And and once you cap it with that, or you bookend it with this little sequence, it's a way to refract what you're, what you're watching. So it's going to be tongue-in-cheek. It's going to be looking back. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hopeful. But the underlying sort of vein that is is there is this regret. And, and I think that you're right about Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, sometimes going with the formless and sticking away from narrative because I don't think that narrative is the most important thing to him. I think it's mood. It's no, definitely, no, no, no. It's, it's definitely mood. It's feeling. It's definitely character. And, you know, whether it's a There Will Be Blood, like you just think of the opening of There Will Be Blood. Like if that movie wasn't, you know, a, a dialogueless slog of watching someone torture themselves for their fortune and literally being stuck between a rock or multiple rocks tumbling down onto you to your imminent death in a mine or clawing oneself to their fortune um you know that that is about uh, that is him playing in metaphorical and literal spaces at the same time and then you look at master and you see freddie quell and he's this kind of opportunistic cockroach who's in the middle of the war and all he's looking at doing is altering his mind and altering his psychological experience of that by sort of drowning out any you know firings of neurons that actually make him feel what he's meant to be feeling as a human being in a war-torn situation um, and then in this moment, you've got a guy who's just drowning it out slightly softly, a little bit more softly. It's not as intense. Um, but you've kind of got this moment where you're looking back and it's fond. And it's this is just a nice blanket. This is, you know, it's, this is just that nice blanket that you're like, oh, this is what I'm looking at. And for anyone who's maybe grown up by a beach, you know, I grew up on the coast of, um, the, the, the coast of uh, New South Wales in Australia, a little bit north of Sydney. And I grew up in a beachside town. And so when I see this kind of sunset, and I see that Pacific Ocean, which I was looking at from the other side, by the way. Um, when I see that and I look at that that time of night and that 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 beautiful dusk sort of coming down, usually the time that we were running away from the beach because in Australia they told us to get our hell out of there because of sharks, but these kids are running <laughs> towards the beach. Um, but I, I just remember so fondly, you know, my own sort of interminglings of memory and what you bring to it as a person um, uh, as much as I do what what the film is trying to do and so yeah i just there's just so much that is going on in this small scene you know and and i think 
that they're all the elements that capture me before we even get to the fact that it's the big sleep exactly as you said or before we even get to the fact that it's it's one gradient different between the big sleep and the big lebowski and uh before we even get to some of the wonderful guests that you're going to talk about who are going to say the perfect pairing for this movie in a double feature just so happens to be one of the most popular movies in the world right now <laughs> once upon oh a time God, in hollywood yeah. um so um you know i think yeah i think there's just so much with this style with this mood with this aesthetic um, and if I have one deep regret, aside not uh, aside from hosting, not aside from being your first guest, which I'm honoured to be, is I let think, me have it. This is a movie about regret. So, let me have it. So the regret is that I, genu- of life. I genuinely think that if you watch this opening forty seconds, and you watch Doc engage with Shasta, and you watch him walk out into the street at Gordita Beach, and you see the effortless production design of clothes and cars and everything in those lights and you see her drive away and a big neon stamp goes and stamps Mm. itself on the screen and vitamin c starts playing if you don't like this movie then just get out of this podcast get out of the house get (laughs) out of here because i don't want to hear from you that's i'm just gonna i'm gonna say it again i regret that i'm not here for that moment but I'm deeply honored to um, to be on this first moment here to talk as we're leading up to it because I think it's just once you've got a movie like this, it becomes a tantalizing thing that you're just going to explore and tear apart and rip up. And yeah, it's, 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 it's divine. Well, not to get too far ahead, but I will say this. I will say this. I understand when people tell me they don't like Inherent Vice. I try not to be... I try not to be the actually Twitter reply guy, actually, and explain to someone why they're wrong and why this movie is a fucking masterpiece and they need to stop what they're doing and go rewatch it. I won't do that. I will accept that this is not a film for everyone, and that's cool. That's fine. But what I will not accept, Blake, what I will not accept, and this is my show and I don't have to accept it, is anyone who watches the first eight minutes of this film sort of liege recalling what happened and in that beautiful dissolve to Shasta Faye whispering in Doc's doorway, that long, very Raymond Chandler-esque conversation, mm. the walk down the street to her car, the the title card coming up with cans, vitamin C blaring, regardless of what you think of the rest of this film, if that just doesn't do it for you on a basic <laughs> cellular cinematic <laughs> If that doesn't get you off, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I will never forget the first time I saw this film. It was Me opening now. weekend, Sunday night, December 2014. I was sitting in the arc light in Los Angeles. And when that song kicked in, I had the biggest, goofiest grin on my face. I was so happy. I was like, holy shit. PTA is making... He's. He's really laying it out. He's going to make the rock and roll big, big sleep. He is making Neil Young and Crazy Horse do the big sleep. <laughs> and I, I, it blew my mind. I was so excited. And I love the rest of the film. But I will say that that right there, that eight minute chunk, that is my favorite thing yeah. that PTA has ever committed to film. I uh, there's, there's lots of things I love in his work. But that eight minutes, that to me, that is pure... That's a pure cinema high. There's something just it's it's got the noir stuff I love. It's it's got the that sin, that great sense of beauty and regret, that postcard LA vision. 
and then you throw on a killer rock and roll song, <laughs> a cool ass, a cool ass neon logo, and you take a walk at the beach. Oh, what's better than that? Like, what's better than that? What more do you want I from mean, the opening of a film? I can't answer that. that right I can't answer that question because exactly, except in, in amongst a, a probably less receptive, cynical media crowd with high, extremely high PTA ex, uh, uh, expectations. I had that exact reaction as soon as that came up. Massive smile, and I think you're so right. There's something that we need to all, you know, um, and you experience it whether you're watching any kind of mystery show, any like classic noir, any detective story. Is that people, you know, there there are folks in there who, you know, either from past obsessions with, you know, those kind of those kind of mediums um, uh, and familiarity, you start to second guess, you start to try and put the puzzle together, you start to do that. But I think there's a there's this beautiful tantalizing entree to any movie that really can execute and soar. And I think in this. It's already really clear in in not only this scene uh, that we're talking about, but in the in the coming scene. And I'm so dying to, for your next guest to, to unpack it um, because I know who they are. Um, and uh, but uh, <laughs> but I'm. It's also because everything is there. There's already a mess. Yeah. It's already yeah. a mess. It's already muddy. There's already conflicted emotions. There's already regrets. There's already. Um, uh, countering antagonistic forces who we haven't quite mapped out and matched. Um, and part of the scene that is so beautiful that we've gotten to discuss today is just how, you know, this completely unexpected, you know, you know, uh, uh, and under and very easily underestimated, by the way, um, Stoner is just completely seemingly ill-equipped, but starts to get a foothold. <laughs> Um, a grubby foothold uh, because his feet are very grubby and often barefoot in this movie. Um, a grubby foothold of all these things. Um, even though, you know, Shasta um, complicates things. And if we all haven't had our brains muddied by complicated people who have maybe had long relationships with that weren't successful, well, I don't know if you've had a full human experience yet. I think everyone can pretty much say that. Um and yeah, it's a it's it's a real it's a real treat. I'm gonna have as much fun producing this show as hopefully the people listening to it are listening to it, and you doing it and exploring your obsessions. I'm I'm really really happy that this is where it is. Oh well, believe me, you're gonna get a double barrel of my obsessions over the next couple <laughs> of months. You might you might come you might come to regret that. But if I if I could jump to something really quickly, two things I wanted to say about what you just said the first off is this is a complicated film as you said it's a little wacky but i also just to the people that say it makes no sense i would like to point to the film's trailer in which sort of Liege again comes out of nowhere and in like 20 the first 20 seconds of this film's trailer totally explains the entirety of the plot <laughs> yes I don't know if anyone remembers that trailer, but she, uh, it, it, you've got Doc doing his pratfalls. You've got some great music playing, and she's just letting us have it with, uh, what is it? If it's, if it's a quiet night out at the beach and uh, your ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin, maybe you should just look the other way. That's it. That's, that's the whole movie. Plot-wise, that's it. It's not... I love what uh, PTA says. He's like, uh, uh, we're long on character, short on plot. That's that's all this movie is. It gets, uh, you know, I think a lot of people make the 
the detective movie mistake of trying to hang on to a plot point. You don't when you're watching a detective movie, the plot's the last thing you should focus on. The plot is just an excuse to get a pretty girl in a room in front of our detective or someone in another room pointing a gun at our detective <laughs> or he pointing a gun at that person. That's it. The plot is just an excuse to or get to, us there. Or, and to or for that guy who can off. be pointing a gun or a loaded needle at our hero who's wearing That's a true. tie with a naked true. image of the pretty girl from <laughs> that scenario onto that. Then, yes, then we... Okay, we so that. maybe it gets a smidge complicated <laughs> towards the end there. A little complicated towards the no, end. No, maybe I, I, he I'm, escapes I'm not, with I'm, a shard of a credit card. I'm not dismissing but, that. I think, I think any director, to, to your point, I think any director who would prefer to have a muddy plot detail to enrich character is better. Like, and audiences are not stupid. Like, right now, we have access to more media than we've ever had at our fingertips on demand in any other time in human history. And so people are way, you know, and people who are genre experts, detective experts, true crime experts, you know, even if, if, even if it's like popcorn procedural, like you kind of get stuff. Stories can be complex. They don't have to be mapped out. I just think it's, um, I think some people get so inured to like, you're going to tell me everything and I don't have to do any work, but that's not really the kind of film that I think perhaps you and I are drawn to. I like the gaps. I like what the character, how the character is acting and engaging with me and what they're attempting to convey that they're not having to have said or that is not necessarily going to be outlined via the plot. Yeah, in in an interview about this film, uh, Anderson even said, he's like, yeah, it's basically... He said, it's kind of boring, isn't it? It's just a bunch of people sitting in rooms talking. And he's like, <laughs> and then the you've got one character telling Doc one thing. The next character he meets contradicts that one thing. Then the third character he meets corroborates the first thing, contradicts the second thing. And that's basically what the film is. Because, again, it's just an excuse to get people in rooms talking to each other about the subject that the storyteller, and in this case it's PTA, is interested in. And I think what he's interested in is the inherent vice of life, that things end. All things in life end. You can't insure against that. How do you live with that? How do you let go of that? And for those of us who can't let go of that, how do you live with that obsession? How do you live with that thing you just can't let go of? How do you live with that one ex-old lady who's out there who you know is probably not even right for you, (laughs) but that's who you're thinking of? That's who you're thinking of as you're laying on your couch, looking out the window at the ocean, listening to the kids run by, you just can't let go of her. You can't let go of asking yourself, where is she? Who's she with? Who's she talking about? Is she thinking about me? Does she miss me? Was I as important to her as she is to me? And and when she walks and when, and when she walks back into your life, she's unrecognizable. She's she's not the woman you remember. She's it's not, not the person. She's not. It's not the, the person, person you remember. Yeah. You remember someone different. You remember someone idealized the way Sorlige would sit on a beach. And be able to tell you a story and she might be telling you the best version of that story maybe not the real version of that story but she's telling you the version of the story she wants you to hear because she has something she wants to say the way pta has something he wants to say the way pension had something he wanted to say and if i may train the the obsessive shotgun at you for a moment i know that sounds super threatening apologize <laughs> but you mentioned earlier that this is this is a, this is a movie of endings. This is an end of an era movie, and not just an end of an era movie. This is of its own that special genre uh, that we recently got an amazing contribution to from Quentin Tarantino. This is an end of the '60s movie. Yes, and 
if if I can go on a little bit of a cul-de-sac here, please forgive me. It's my show. I'm going to do it anyway. I don't know you why don't I'm You don't have to apologize. Me. I'm sitting um, right here waiting for you to go down a tangent. If you think anyone who's listened to us on One Heat Minute is not oh accustomed to you going down a tangent, then I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> and hey, Inherent Vice, this is, this is a podcast about Inherent Vice. This is going to be a podcast of nothing but tangents. So if anyone's <laughs> listening to this wondering, Jesus, what, are you just going to tell me like who killed Martin Short? Uh, spoiler alert. Um, you know, no. This is a this is going to be a podcast of nothing but tangents. And then, when like the movie, when you stand back, you look at it all, it'll make sense. Probably, maybe, we'll see. But when you're talking about the the Mansnoyer Twilight of the end of the 1960s and the Hangover that immediately followed in the 70s, because this is a Hangover movie. This, mm-hmm. That's the best way. This is a Hangover film. When you're talking about those things, you are both contractually and pretentiously obligated to talk about Joan Didion. And her end of the era essay, the White Album, and in it she she loosely catalogs all these various strands that led up to and came out of the events of August eighth and August 9th on Cielo Drive in Los Angeles in 1969. This braid of events that formed the knot K O K N O T excuse me of the Manson murders, and what that was, as she posits, was essentially the death knell of this hopeful generation. This schismal moment when everything in the American fate just seemed to sour and the period that apex with the summer of love, it slowly just drug on and faded into this bloodied and despondent winter of never ending discontent that she, that we, and the characters of inherent vice all find ourselves now living in the aftermath of. And if you're going to talk about Didion and we have to, <laughs> when we're talking about an end of the sixties movie, you, you can't, you can't not bring this up as cliche as it is. Then we have to talk about the white albums, most famous line, which is we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And just as Joan Didion and all her friends did that deadly summer in an attempt to make sense of what she called that era's senseless chain of correspondences uh, in which she remembered buying a wedding dress on the morning that JFK was killed. And a couple of years later, Roman Polanski ruined that dress by spilling red wine on it. And then how a few years later, she had to buy a dress for Linda Kasabian, the Manson family member who was then test testifying against Manson in the trial concerning the murder of Polanski's wife. Uh, when, when Didion was looking at this insane string of connections what did this all mean this decade-long series of dresses that seems to reflect the dawn and dusk of a decade and the damage done mustn't it all mean something she asked you know and if it does mean something if it's all for something doesn't that make our suffering through it worth it and that question isn't that what this film is scene after scene of inherent vice skipping from comedy to paranoia to drama to American lament, to satire, to sorrow, sometimes all of the above, all at once. Each of these scenes is essentially Doc interrogating or being interrogated by, uh, you know, pensions impossibly alliteratively named rogues gallery <laughs> of, of all these broken hearted burnouts. And they, all of them, time has passed them by. And all of the, all of them are suffering against the inherent vice of the day, and they present to Doc all of these mysteries and plot points that haunt their lives, the way those dresses haunted Joan Didion. 
And from dead husbands to missing neighborhoods to kidnapped real estate big shots, all of these characters have something that's missing. They have something that is lost, that time has taken from them, that inherent vice has taken from them. And they all say to Doc the same thing. They bring him this this random information, this story of bloodied dresses. And they say, make sense of this. Find the narrative in this. Solve my life. Tell me a story so that I can live. And isn't that, that's, that's the whole film. And isn't that what Sordelige is doing right now as she opens this film? Isn't she saying, here, here's the plot points. Here's this mystery. Solve it. Let these people live. Find out what this means. Tell ourselves a story in order to live. And I, I think that's what, that, that's, for me, that's why Sordelige narrates this. And that's why all of these scenes, you know, people say it's boring. It's just people sitting in a room talking. They're doing exactly what Joan Didion said. They're coming. And that's why the detective movie, the detective movie structure and genre is the perfect genre for this an end of the 60s movie, because it's a story about all these people spun out in orbit around this damaged decade, wondering what happened? <laughs> why did it happen? How did we get here? Can you tell me? Can you tell me a story so that I can live? And and I want to compliment. I, I want to compliment what you're saying, not compliment as in praise. Compliment it with well, just you one. It's we'll pretty, we'll, it's we'll both. Smart. It's beautiful. But it's pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, Joan Didion was good. Um, let's not let's not to make too fine a point on it. No, I I just mean to compliment it is to go, the mystery, and the missing nature and the make sense of it becomes all the more thrilling when you put that in the hands of someone who feels like they're totally inept. And so yeah. that is the the thrill, the joy, the uncontrollable laugh out loud and fear of of Doc's character as our central protagonist here is because as these things are unfolding we're not sure he's ever going to be able to make sense of anything that's happening. No, it, it undercuts everything. Is that, you know, I love when someone gives him a crucial, my favorite joke <laughs> in the film, we're going to skip a little bit ahead, my favorite joke in the film, and no one ever laughed in theaters with me when I would laugh at this, because I, c confession, I saw this six times theatrically. Beautiful. Um, the scene in which uh, he's told the name of a new Mickey Wolfman real estate venture and the name of this thing that he's got to go track down, it's in Spanish. And so he writes in his notebook, something Spanish. Spanish. <laughs> that's all he has to go on when he looks this up later. Something Spanish. Which, if you live in L.A., that's not going to be the <laughs> that's, most helpful that's tidbit. Not a, that's not helpful. But that's, that's the one note he makes of this clue, something Spanish. And that, that's, that's our hero. And that, but that, that's also perfect. He's the perfect hero for a story like this because just like us... He has no idea what the fuck is going on. I love what sort of leech, what she says about him in the trailer. He's not a do-gooder, but he does good. Yes. You know, and that's, Ed, to, to take it back to what you said at the beginning, he is, he's kind of like a mangy dog, but he's a good dog. He's going to do <laughs> the right thing. He might not know why he's doing it. He might not know why he's clasped onto this bone as hard as he can. But once he does, he's not going to let go. He doesn't understand why he's doing it. He doesn't understand what's going to happen five seconds after he does it. But he knows it's the right thing to do, so he's going to do it. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, that's why I love Doc. He is. He's, he's a good dog. 
Doc's a good dog. <laughs> oh, man. Boy, this just took a turn. But, yeah, so, like I was saying, all of these characters talking to each other, they're just looking for a narrative. They're coming to this detective because they want a narrative so their life will make sense. The one thing that Inherit Vice takes from us, that sense of narrative, they want him to give them so that they can live. And that, ultimately, in my mind, that's what this show is, is it's going to be a bunch of us nerds <laughs> sitting around. I'm going to be sitting here as this goofy, totally clueless detective. All of you are going to come on and you're going to tell me your inherent vice story. And we're going to sift through it together. And, you know, everyone's pieces of inherent vice. We're going to build this giant exploded view of this film. We'll tell ourselves a story to live. And maybe the struggle against inherent vice, both the movie and the force in real life, it won't be such a struggle anymore. At least we'll understand one thing. We'll understand this movie. Might not understand the rest of life. But we'll have this set. <laughs> I think we'll, we can check that off the list. I think we can check off that people will understand this movie at the end of this 45 episode series. I'm not sure if we're going to quite have the aspiration of being able to map out life. You think we're going to be able to figure out life at the end? of the, I don't know. I think I if you know. figure out the movie Inherent Vice, you, you're if you figure out Inherent Vice, you might be set. You might have all the answers. I mean, Doc, he seems pretty happy by the end. So, you know, who knows? You figure this out. We, we might all be a lot happier. Either that or, or right now you are hearing real time me, uh, audience. You are hearing me develop a cult right now. <laughs> oh, as, I, as I am promising you the, the truth behind the secret of life. If you'll just come just watch this movie with me a lot. Come to my apartment. We'll just watch the movie a lot. You know, and maybe PayPal me like a couple thousand each time. Something like that. We'll figure it out later. But, yeah. Uh, we're going to see how far we get with this. But... That's the idea anyway, is to just let's just see if we can't figure out this film together and have a lot of fun doing it. And I have to say, Blake, I've had a lot of fun tonight talking to you about it. It's really, really weird talking to you about something that has nothing to do with Michael Mann. But I've really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's we it's we it's it's um it's weird to have the tables turned when you and I are talking. It is, isn't it? But it's Oh, it's so good. I'm so uh We're, it, it, on a on a more uh, true personal note, um, there's no other better indication of um, the success of this show than to hear how passionately and intelligently and richly you've talked about it as your guest. Uh, I'm the one who's meant to be giving the rich analysis here um so uh i just wanted oh, to say oh geez i'm well, gonna uh, cancel the next guest just have you come on keep, uh, keep talking um, about um, me like um, this so so look i'm 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 excited i'm excited for folks listening um i'm excited as a listener um and i can't wait uh, i can't wait to hear all the wonderful guests diving through doc with you oh god i'm looking forward to it too i thank you for coming on tonight it's been great talking to you Thank you, everybody at home, for listening. We'll see you next time for the next episode where myself and a very special guest are going to discuss those five little words. I need your help, Doc. Well, Blake and Travis might not be do-gooders, but they sure did good, despite the fact that with every answer they came to, more and more questions arose. What is the Golden Fang? Who is Sordalige, really? And what's Doc's ex-old Shasta Fay have to do with it all? Or, to quote old Thomas Pinchon, what in the fuck was going on here, basically? Maybe Travis will figure that out next time. Or maybe never. Or maybe, maybe 
Maybe just talking about inherent vice will be enough. It's obsessions, it's tangents, and so on and so on and so on, with the like-minded and oppositional alike, all the way to the very end. Just keep going until something new reveals itself, because there's something else Pinchon wrote too. What goes around may come around, but it never ends up exactly the same place. You ever notice? Like a record on a turntable. All it takes is one groove's difference, and the universe can be on into a whole nother song. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.